right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 342. With that number, we'll give a shout out to Renee Cuellar, the player from Mexico who scored the first ever NWSL goal back in 2013 in the inaugural game. She scored for Kansas City. Christine Sinclair then equalized for Portland, so that first game ended 1-1. Cuellar spent most of the, the first re- inaugural season with FC Kansas City. And then the remainder of the season in Seattle with the rain, where she played 342 minutes. All right, two chats for this episode. Um, two great chats. First, I spoke with Theo Lloyd Hughes from the Striker Texas, a relatively new website covering all soccer in Texas. Um, he gave me a Dash update both on the new interim coach, how the Dash has been doing. Um, very interesting season for the Dash since a regular season started. And then I spoke with Tony Matza, a good friend who used to run the NWSL Analytica Twitter feed. He's now working with Stats Perform, doing a lot of analytical soccer work. Um, Tony helped me understand concepts like expected goals, and we also talked about when an assist is not an assist, when it is, and why all of that is kind of, you know, a matter of interpretation. So two great chats, also a Jen Splainer segment. Hope you enjoy it. Sorry for all the cat noises in the background. I just adopted a kitten. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at MixZone with two X's or at Keeper Notes. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Theo Lloyd Hughes. Yes, that's a hyphenated last name. And he is the intrepid reporter for Striker Texas. Um, Theo, I can't believe I haven't had you on the podcast sooner. um, Because one, I'm so glad there's someone else I can talk to about Houston Dash without having to interview myself or interview (laughs) someone else that runs a Houston Dash podcast. but first, before we get into to Houston things, um, I want to hear just a little bit about how you ended up in Texas and just a little bit about Striker Texas, because the organization is not that old, right? No, not at all. Uh, yeah, I mean, first things first, thanks so much for having me, Jen. Uh, it's an honor to be with the keeper. And uh, yeah, it is great to have more people giving giving a bit of time, giving a bit of spotlight to Texas Texas football and Houston Dash and NWSL, um, you know, like yourself, doing a tremendous job of making sure everything is known because it is hard to get the information out there sometimes um yeah the striker is only a year old or 15 months old which is sort of crazy to say out loud um chris bills a journalist in austin texas started it with a guy called roberto silva who used to work in usl and they they felt like there was just not enough um football coverage soccer coverage in the united states in particular in texas you know you're more likely to see high school football high school basketball in the newspaper than you are right uh, soccer and they they always thought that was an issue and, and it was kind of the momentum behind Austin FC was kind of what made them feel like, hey, no one is talking enough about soccer. You know, Chris was working at the Austin American Statesman. No one was talking about covering Austin FC. And he was like, you're bonkers. So they basically started their own. <laughs> I know, no, serious. There was all this stuff of like, they were not going to pay anyone to talk about Austin FC. And they have about three or four contracted guys with 401ks and whatnot talking about the Longhorns. Uh, right, you know, right. Like Longhorns, you know, training camps or whatever for the eight games a year those unpaid athletes pay. 
play. So, you know, there was a lot of conversations going on around what soccer coverage looked like in Austin. And, and then that kind of branched out to soccer coverage across the whole state. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I joined to do women's football, women's soccer, and, and particularly kind of be intrepid and follow the Houston Dash. And yeah, I, I joined... I joined a bit late. I joined about April last year, right before the season started. And, and uh-huh. the, website, the website launched about February, March 2021. Yeah, I, I mean, I was happy to, to see it happen, given that, you know, I've, I've lived through the, the slow growth of, of pro soccer where, you know, we've had FC Dallas since the beginning of MLS, of course, when it was Dallas Burn, you know, got the dynamo in 2006 we've had you know lower level teams here and there like you know san antonio fc you know what used to be uh whatever orlando city was when they were in austin i can't remember their name back before the they austin moved to orlando. aztecs the austin aztecs yes. that's it home park 2012 never forget i was there and then it flooded <laughs> and they had to move a bunch oh. of the games Oh, I remember the, that. The real heads, no. The real heads, no. I was living in Austin at the time, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then we've, obviously, we have, you know, Rio Grande Valley starting off, um, you know, Andy Bissell coming to Houston. Then you get Austin FC, like, and then and then you can factor in, right, like, college, too. So, and then, you know, we keep having national teams, national team games come here, right? Like, Austin hosted a game last Friday and this afternoon, um, of course, after this comes comes out, um, we'll know whether or not uh, Dallas and Houston get to be World Cup hosts. So, yeah, I was excited when the when the striker launched. And then, how did you end up in Texas? I mean, and as a white English guy, why are you not coaching? <laughs> I am the only white English male not coaching in WSL. Actually, uh, <laughs> it's. No, that's a funny story. I uh, I went to University of Texas in 2012, right around the time of the Austin Aztecs golden era, the golden age of the Austin Aztecs. Um, <laughs> I was doing study abroad. You know, I was doing, I was reading English literature and American literature in England. Came over, uh, did some literature over here, and fell in love with with kind of someone, and that's for another podcast. But someone, and <laughs> and and Texas, and and Austin, and I basically did a couple of things to try and fudge my way into the country. Moved back for a bit, and then and then came back permanently in, in 2015. And I've never left. So that's what seven years ago. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of was always a huge football fan. Grew up a mile away from Queens Park Rangers in West London, Hammersmith Shepherd's Bush area, and. Uh, yeah, it's always just been a huge passion of mine and was always writing, blogging, talking, was doing podcasts back in 2010, 2012 about just stupid football stuff I wanted to talk about. And then, yeah, kind of around 2019, uh, I started watching the NWSL and, and and really started getting into into women's football a bit later. I mean, I, I kind of grew up watching Rachel Yankee and would watch Euros and World Cups and stuff like that in the Olympics, but I didn't really start watching kind of women's league football both here and and in and in England until 2019 if I'm being totally honest so that was well it transition. wasn't it wasn't necessarily something you could you could watch easily no um, not at all not at all but so. w- with that let's let's turn to the Houston Dash and their big announcement uh yesterday uh that they've named uh, an interim coach different from Sarah Loudon, who's been the acting head coach in this transition time. So, so give me the lay of the land. So we've got James Clarkson, we've got Sarah Loudon, and we've got Juan Carlos Amoros. Yeah, it's funny you put it like that. I'd love to see the sort of uh, Houston Dash accounting 
you know, how many clubs have said they've got three head coaches on payroll, hypothetically? Uh, yeah, three head coaches uh, in, in one season for the Houston Dash. Jen, you'll be able to tell me if that's an NWSL record. Um, it's, it's interesting. I think I really like you gave the clarification, you know, get your pen out, listener, draw a line under interim, interim draw a line under acting. These are really important adjectives. Um, or even verbs, uh, you know. I think we need we need to get specific about the language, and it, and it tells you a lot about what this club is trying to say, what it's trying to do right now. And I think, you know, in regards to Clarkson, we just don't know. There's this investigation. We've been told from Jessica Berman, who spoke to the Athletic. It's going to be slow. It's not going to be done. It's going to be done right. It's going to be done slow. It's not going to be done quick. We have no clarification whenever, whenever we've asked from it from the clubs on the NWSL. So it, we can kind of put a pin in that and know it's not going anywhere. And so in that respect, the Dash are kind of thinking short-term, mid-term, long-term. And I think when they brought on uh, – well, they gave the acting, again, to use that word, head coach job to Sarah, they always said, you know, both publicly and I think within, that they were looking for someone else to steer the ship for the 2022 season. And so when they when they reached out to recruiters or people you know around the league to say okay who are the candidates that can take a, an NWL team for the rest of the season kind of that's where they landed at Juan Carlos Amaros uh, and and other managers of that ilk. Obviously, Sarah's ended up doing eight games. She's going to have another game at the weekend because of visa getting uh, sorry Juan Carlos Amaros's visa getting approved. So they've kind of ended up in a, in a funny situation where Sarah's going to have taken nine games really, really won over the, the locker room, really, really won over the fans. But I think when you look at what Jess O'Neill has said, both, again, publicly and privately to Sarah, the way Sarah has talked about the first team head coaching job, I don't think you know she really wanted it. She knew it wasn't on the table. She knew the club was looking for other people. And so that's kind of how Juan Carlos Amaros comes in. I think they've been looking at people for a while now, a, a number of weeks, and I think... They've probably even had Amaros kind of ready to go for a few weeks now. I spoke to him yesterday and, and he definitely is really, really excited about the project, really, really excited about meeting Ted Siegel, Jessica O'Neill, Sarah Loudon, all these people. He wants to be a part of the club and he, you know, he doesn't know if it's going to be long-term, but I think he's really, really excited about it. And I think the club wanted someone with maybe a little bit more kind of professional first team head coaching experience than Sarah to kind of enter that position. And, and I think Sarah knew that and, and Jess knew that. And I think it was all above board. Like I said, we've got ourselves in a situation where she, Sarah's probably been in charge longer than they'd expected when Clarkson was suspended. Right. Right. And, you know, she's done really well. And, and I, I feel like when I've seen her on the the post game pressers, like she seems really composed. She seems composed on on the sideline, and I don't mean to imply that someone wouldn't be composed, but it, I feel like body language tells you a lot, right? And mm. and she, mm. she she kind of gives me the impression of of kind of a Laura Harvey, where she's just doing her thing. She's so focused on her thing, she doesn't care if you think she's not dressing the part. She's just she's so into coaching is the vibe you know, that I get from her. Um, When I first heard about her coming on uh, to the dash this time around, she was a volunteer for the dash several seasons ago. um, And I found her blog. I was just fascinated that the the journey she's had, um, you know, English like you, but ending up not in a cool place like Austin, but, you know, Mississippi and then Lake Charles, Louisiana. (laughs) Um, And then that she's, you know, had many different kind of gigs. Um, but, you know, so, so I think she's bringing such a wealth of experience 
to the dash, but it's a different experience than what Amaros is offering and perhaps what the dash management are looking for? I mean, how would you contrast the two in terms of their their CVs? Well, they're both very well traveled. I think, you know, there are some similarities here. Juan Carlos Amaros also, you know, you can go and check out a piece I did. I sat down with him yesterday. It's an exclusive on the Strike of Texas. But he, he has a really interesting background because he worked a lot in semi-professional amateur women's soccer before kind of reaching wow. the, the elite game. Yeah, yeah. He, he was worked at Tottenham Hotspur for 10 years when they were in the fourth division of English football. So if you're not familiar, listener, I'm sure you probably are. In England, we have relegation and promotion. And so, you know, there's only two professional women's leagues in England, which, I mean, sounds all right to some extent, but there should be more. Um, but there's, yeah, so you have the FA Women's Super League and below that you have the FA Women's Championship. So when Amaros joined Spurs in 2011, they were in the fourth division. So these are people who have jobs and he's, he was coaching these people after their normal job. You know, he was getting paid by Spurs uh, to work for their like foundation and charity groups and coach some of their kids. And he was coaching what was Tottenham Hotspur women. But he uh, and, and Karen Hills, his coach, co-head coach, they take this team from the fourth division of English football all the way to the Women's Super League. They end up finishing sixth in in 2020. Um, And I I think he does have experience in regards to like, he's seen women's football at every level and he's taken people who were, you know, he talked, when I spoke to him yesterday, he he said his greatest achievement is coaching Ashley Neville, a a player that was a teacher when he scouted her. And then now she was nominated for FA Women's Super League Player of the Year last year. And so he 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 talked a lot about in the, in the way he's seen women football in his experience, it's just growing so much. And he wants to give these players the chance to be the best people, the best players they can be. And I think he, he, he's not just someone who's been in in elite systems or just is like, you know, a coach's coach that has got the qualifications and and got the video. You know, he, he didn't have a, a massively successful playing career, started coaching when he was 15 in Madrid. He worked for a coaching education company that took him to the United States for a bit where he was kind of coaching youth coaches over here, then goes back to Scotland, the Netherlands, England. Then he was at Real Betis, walks out of that job and and, and now ends up to Houston Dash. So he's very well traveled. He's only 38, but he has a lot of coaching experience, um, which like you said, you know, Loudon has an amazing resume. And I think maybe the only difference is she's done a lot more stuff outside of coaching. You know, she's done equipment managing. She's done player welfare. She's done general managing. She's done physio and health. She, she almost has an amazing resume for just kind of overall soccer experience and human experience. Like you said, you know, the, the people she's coached under and the places she's been. So I like your question about, you know, is this, is this a record for NWSL coaches in a season? Um, I, but I, I do think I, I like the way that Houston, um, the management is, is thinking about this, like you said, short term, midterm, long term, right? Mm. Like setting themselves up that regardless of what happens, uh, with the conclusion of the Clarkson investigation that they are in a position to succeed, right? That you Absolutely. have some, they have someone that you've brought on as an interim head coach who's thinking long-term and hoping he can stay long-term. Um, but if he can't, like, I, I was pleased to see that they made it clear in the press release that, you know, Sarah has been given the title of first assistant. They made it clear that she's, you know, the most important one because, you know, then then she's still there too right like she wasn't someone who was just covering the gap and is now being moved on no she is a vital part of this as well um and and i have to remind listeners that it's really still very new in nwsl that uh 
well, and especially Houston, that you have a whole group of paid assistants. Mm-hmm. 2019, 2019 was the first season for the Houston Dash to have a full complement of coaches, meaning a paid head coach and three paid assistant coaches. They did not have that before 2019. So three years later that we're actually, you know, going through all of this with interim acting, but it's like clearly they are committed to what do we need so that the team can succeed, right? As opposed to, you know, it's like, I think those early years where it's like, well, we've got this great head coach, but everything else we're just going to have to like make do. So to to me, it's a big movement from make do to no, we want to succeed. I really like the way you put that. And I think that's, that does put a lot into what Sarah Loudon has done the last seven, eight weeks. And and the, the fact that the players trust her, the club want her to be, I think Loudon's kind of been the face of the club to some extent, you know, yes. um, along, with, along with Jessica O'Neill. And I think those two have done a tremendous job of kind of acting on behalf of the dash to some extent. And, 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 you know, even, Think about the Uvalde shooting. You know, Loudon gave some of the most kind of emotional and, and human testimonies I feel like we saw in, in, in the kind of soccer world that week. Um, so I think she's a great advocate for the club and, and they want to keep her around, like you said, to be successful. Yeah, yeah. They've brought in a, a lot of great people. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, but let's talk um, about how the Dash have done um, in these games under Loudon. I, you know, I would say this is their, you know, best start uh, to a season in, in club history. Um, it's definitely their ben- best defensive start. Um, you know, a rough game, obviously, versus Portland. But given this league, we know that can happen at any time. We've seen, we've seen the top teams struggle. We've seen the bottom teams succeed. And I even don't like to use the phrase top and, and bottom when it really, parity really shows in this league. But give me your thoughts of the dash over the last six weeks. I think, you know, it's funny if you if we'd had this conversation before Sunday, you maybe would have got a different answer. But I think of course <laughs> a result like Sunday was always on the cards, like you said. There's a tremendous amount of parity. There's a tremendous amount of good and bad luck. You think about Katie Norton's own goal in the thirty fifth second or whatever. And yeah. Errors, errors come and go. You know, no one is perfect, and the Houston Dash, for better or for worse, had been almost perfect for sort of six weeks. You know, they really hadn't been making errors, and every pass had been very safe. And you know, you see a lot of those statistics about like sixty-five percent passing accuracy. Well, when you're not making uh, accurate passes, that's often because you're playing it long, and you're and you're just making sure you're not making any mistakes. I think, in a way, maybe some of the confidence or that sense of like, okay, we've got to get better on the ball, we've got to do a little bit more with it gives way to what you see in the third goal where Ali Prysock plays it across and, and Katie Norton miscontrols it 10 yards out from her own goal like you just weren't seeing that kind of lack of execution maybe lack of concentration um, and also you know the dash hadn't been down two goals uh, since the Challenge Cup so it, I think Sunday was a totally explainable result I think it, it kind of like I said, changes the complexion of the last six games before it. But I think more than anything, the overall summarization of kind of the, the Sarah Loudon era or the, the great start to the season, as you, as you put it, is very, very hard to be very, very kind of st- 
sturdy, tactically sound, uh, tactically flexible, I, I would say, is another thing which I think we've seen from them, which yes. is, is, is really Very valuable. Important. Maria Sanchez playing three positions within 90 minutes. Like, how many teams can do that? I think Loudon's tactical chops and her trust in, in players when players maybe didn't think they signed up to do these kind of jobs, but Loudon's managed to get them to do that. I think that's been a huge part of this, um, this team. And, and team first, I guess that would be the other thing. I think players like Daly, players like Sanchez, these star players maybe not getting their stats up. I know Daly does have a few goals this year, but it felt like a lot of the players were suppressing their own personal stats for overall team stats. Um, and, and maybe getting a little bit more out of Nichelle Prince uh, as well would be like another another good takeaway. Um, although, again, if you look at that Orlando game, a bit like the Portland game, it's kind of a combination of a bit of fortune, a bit of skill, yeah. and, and maybe and maybe some errors. You know, those are the kind of, that's the cocktail of things that can go right or wrong in any NWSL game. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd say tactical flexibility, putting the team first and, and being very, very, playing it safe and being hard to beat have kind of been the takeaways. Well, and I feel like we've seen um, kind of a new face from Jane Campbell. Um, yes, that's such a huge know. narrative, yeah. And and also, to your point about Nichelle, I feel like she's been knocking on that door for a while. Like, um, you know, she's so great box to box. Um, and I remember a lot of games last year where she'd have these amazing shots, but they were all just a little off, right? Just a little yeah, off target. Well, and she wasn't playing at the nine. I think that's a big thing as well. You know, even I remember in the full series, which is kind of like a weird set of games to an- analyze. But when I was covering that, I remember thinking, oh, maybe we'll see Michelle at the nine. You know, uh, Rachel was away playing for West Ham, but uh, James opted for Veronica Latsko. And, and last year during the Olympics, again, it was Latsko at the nine. Obviously, Prince wasn't here either. But I think seeing Sarah say, hey, you can be one of our two forwards in, in the three five two. that's a big a big thing for Prince to get. And like you said, I think she's kind of sharpened her tools as, as loud and trusted her to be a goal scorer. Yeah. And, you know, and some of the the players that we've brought on, you know, obviously Maria Sanchez, the return of Ali Prysock, you know, um, and I feel like a lot of the, you know, not necessarily big names that, that fans would all know, but, but, little acquisitions that we've picked up and, and I don't mean to demean anyone by saying little acquisition, but like, like Elizabeth Eddy, right? Like someone who's a veteran in the league who could come in, she could play midfield or she can play outside back. She was originally a forward, you know, like that, those pieces, um, I feel like they've gotten a little stronger over the last couple of seasons. Right. I know that's mm. always been a challenge for the dash is really having depth off the bench. Um, but I also feel like with Michaela Bam, Michelle Alozzi, like seeing con- con- more contribution from them than we had last season. Definitely more contribution than last season. I would say that's probably the biggest question marks, though, still on the team. And, and Sunday being the biggest um, indicator of that, you know, no Sophie Schmidt, no Nichelle Prince, no Rachel Daly, the dash get banged 4-0. I don't think it was just because those three players were missing, but I think... The, the episode we're coming into after the international break as CONCACAF World Cup qualifiers comes along, those players are going to be tested and we'll actually find out kind of how good they are in this league. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be an interesting next six weeks where we, so we have this FIFA break after this weekend's games, but then we have a little, a, a few games in July and then they do another kind of like one week break. They can't take the whole month of July off, right? For 
Euros, CONCACAF, AFCON, etc. Um, so we are going to see some players that we don't normally see beyond, you know, a Lozy and, and a Bam, you know, maybe like Joel Anderson and Ryan Garris and, you know, even more on the bench. And thankfully this window won't be as long as it's been in the past, right? Like most, most teams will, you know, lose internationals for maybe four or five games, right? Because I think the schedule yeah. has been a little bit more thoughtful. Um, but it's still going to be a window that if you can succeed or at least hold your own in this window, you set yourself up well to finish the season. Yeah, and there's also the kind of added aspect of like the mental game of going away. Like let's say hypothetically the US and Mexico have a really intense game that, or like, you know, if Mexico beats the USA, some of those USA players might be really affected by like how the media takes that or how Vlatko takes that. Or I I think USA will qualify, but hypothetically, I'm just thinking doomsday, which I would love to see, listener, just so you know, I'd love to see Mexico beat the USA. Um, But yeah, let's (laughs) let's say you come back from CONCACAF and the, it finished, it was a Canada-Mexico final. Um, You know, it's going to be interesting to see how the USA players take that. The Dash don't have any USA players. So maybe the uh, if the US have a bad CONCACAF, that doesn't affect the Dash. But other players, you know, Mal P wants to take an extra two weeks off, as she should. You know, you're playing a mini tournament in the middle of the season. Uh, I think there's little factors like that that we can't predict that could come into play as well. Well, and and to continue with that, like if Rachel Daly has a great Euro tournament, she comes back on a high and carries that into the team. Conversely, yeah. doesn't, you know... Um, and we saw that in 2019 with a lot of NWSL clubs. Um, I remember hearing this from Mark Parsons with Portland. He said, you know, I had Canadians who were disappointed in themselves at the World Cup. I had my star midfielder who, yes, her team won the World Cup, but she didn't get to play in the final. You know, I had Brazilians that were disappointed. He just talked about all of the different, like everybody was in a different place mentally. Um and all these tournaments are a little bit different. Obviously, like the Euro, that's not—they're not going off to qualifying or friendlies. That's like the second most important tournament in in the European world for women, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Con- con- yeah, Concacaf. And it's a home tournament for England as well, which yes, is added, pressure. added, 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 added pressure. You know, the Concacaf tournament. It's not, you know, nearly as competitive. And now that the field for the Women's World Cup is larger, you know, as long as you make it to the semis, you've qualified for the World Cup. And even the third place teams have a chance for for a playoff. So really the storyline there is, well, you want the automatic Olympic berth, but it's it's still, it's not, it's not the same as the Euro, right? Um, We've got some other qualifying going on, but it's like, yeah, different people are are, are in different places. Um, but one one last thing, just you know, give me a few more few more dash thoughts on like you know a player who surprised you, or you know what what fans should be looking for. Um, just because it, I think the dash are in such an interesting place, right? Where we know the Loudon era, at least the first Loudon era, is 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 coming to an end. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm hoping that bringing on a Moros means like another injection of like fresh energy, right? Yeah, I think something I would, I would be interested for fans to look out for is something that is my kind of one of my biggest question marks about the Dash. You know, you brought up 
depth pieces, players stepping up into the shoes of, of, of bigger stars. That's definitely a narrative. But I would also add to that young players. It feels like the dash, and this is maybe a Clarkson, Loudon, and we'll see with Amaros thing, tend to really rely on senior players. This is a club under in the Clarkson era that is not really drafted well or has maybe, to be more honest, has just not really taking the draft seriously in regards to taking top players. They would rather trade those picks away and go elsewhere. And so when you look at what's happening around the league with a lot of teams that are successful, it's this influx of like uber talented rookies who are kind of stealing the show. We don't really have that in Houston. Yes. it's. I think that's the interesting thing is I, I wrote a piece at the beginning of the season, which was kind of titled, the Dash don't have any USA women's national team players and I don't care. And it was about how I really enjoyed the, zig- the zagging of the Dash's scouting, you know, bringing in Maria Sanchez, being in Paulina uh, Gramaglia. So yes, Maria Sanchez has absolutely lived up to the billing. But when are we going to see a little bit more from these kind of like outside picks? Paulina has yet to kind of get in... A match. I don't know. If, I think she hasn't been in an 18 since the challenge. Cup. I don't I think she, she has. Yeah. I know she went away to the Argentina, but and, and as you have told me many a time, she will become the youngest ever player to play for Houston Dash should she get on the pitch. Um, and I think that's something I have been dying to see. And I think even Makamega Moore Stevens, a player who in a, in, a, in a small showing last year, especially during the Olympics, really looked like she was waiting to break out. She's kind of taken a step back from her involvement this year. So I think how the Dash implements younger players, especially players that they've picked up from unorthodox scouting, when are we going to see the fruits of that? Because I think it's something I've I've enjoyed seeing the Dash do. Like I said, I don't think every team has to go out and, and, and trust their number one pick. But if you're going to do it, do it differently, I want to see those players get involved. And it feels like, like you said, it's been maybe more players like Ali Prysock coming back from France and Elizabeth Eddy being picked up as a lead kind of uh, journey woman. These are the players who stepped in, not the younger players. So how the Dash implements youth, I think, is a huge question mark. How depth pieces step up is a huge question mark. Um, I think another big one is how the Dash builds its home form. Like, I think there's an interesting narrative that they've lost two matches on home. The home form is getting better. The fans are getting better. But how the Dash becomes a team that wants to, like, dominate the ball and traditionally win games at home by being on top for 90 minutes, we haven't really seen that yet. Uh, uh, and and now, now it's the summer. PNC is a really, really tough place to play at for both teams. I think there's almost a bit of an unheard of thing that the players don't like playing at PNC because it's so hot. Not because of the fans, <laughs> not because of the stadium, but because who wants to play in Houston in the middle of July? Right. So, so I think... Exactly. It's the oven. That's a good nickname. Uh, So yeah, we're we're hitting a a time when I think home form is going to be really hard to rely on. And like I said, I want to see something from the younger players. I want to see something from the depth pieces. I'd say those are the kind of the added things I'm, I'm keeping an eye on. Well, and I like your point about when are we going to see more youth? Because that makes me think about how the last three and they sold drafts, college drafts have been very slim pickings for the draft because Clarkson used a lot of those picks to acquire uh, players who had experience in the league, right? Like Mm -hmm. Gabby Seiler, Emily Ogle, that kind of thing. So 2019, Clarkson's first year, Dash had a lot of picks. 2020, they had two, Bridget Andrzejewski and Chloe Castaneda, who didn't who didn't report to Andy Russell. So they who, got Bridget. No she, longer you know, in the league, she, yeah. Yeah, who, you know, played a season and then, and then said, you know, I'm done. 2021, the weird draft where you knew that players weren't necessarily coming immediately. Um, we got um, Makame Gamera students and Joel Anderson. Now, Makame did, you know, join the team 
midseason last year, Joel from Pepperdine this season. And then we just had one pick uh, this year, Ryan Garris. So it is like you, you can't only go with experience. You do have to keep, you know, bringing in um, some young talent. And I, I think it's, you know, I, I love to see some analysis of like draft picks who had, you know, how many when and what, what rounds and how it paid off down the line. Like uh, um, last weekend's game when we had uh, Emily Moultrie score uh, against, against the dash and became the youngest goal scorer in NWSL. You know, I, I made a little chart, you know, shared it on Twitter and, you know, someone said, Oh, it's interesting that, that Portland has so many of the, the youngest goal scorers. And it made me think, I'm like, actually, no, because Portland has been so proactive, so competitive about we'll trade anything to get the, the new up and comer. Right. That, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's like that there's, there's a story behind those charts. If, if well, that my, makes sense. The biggest B in my bonnet, so to speak, <laughs> Uh, Jen is that the Dash traded the number six overall pick last year, uh, which would have been Diana Odonez. She scored her first NW Subway season goal at PNC in front of the most brilliant section of Odonez uh, family members <laughs> a few weeks ago. And they traded yes. that pick for 100,000 uh, Mickey Mouse NWSL dollars, to which we have no idea what happened to that money. And um, I would love Diana Odonez to be a Houston Dash bear playing in her home state. You know, she grew up just outside Dallas. And I think. It's moves like that that I think make you scratch your head. Um, she would have been a great a great person to have, especially with Daly away, another nine. And again, seeing these top talent go, you know, I'm not a football manager. I'm not a general manager. I understand that there's different logics, different strategies. And like I said, I've, I've written about how I embrace different strategies. But I think at this stage, there's moves like Deanna Adonia's where maybe we're thinking, oh, would have been nice to have her. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and that'll be my last point. I know we are sitting on a lot of allocation money um, that the Dash have collected. So I want to read that as, you know, we should be seeing some some new signings, some international signings. Well, and maybe that's a good place to kind of come full circle because I think if if we assume that we have no idea Clarkson's future communication with the club – those plans that he probably laid out for the allocation money are probably suspended or maybe dissolved right now. So do you give all the scouting, all the money, all the long-term assets to Sarah Loudon, or do you bring in someone who maybe in the midterm is going to be given the information on those assets? And then 2023, we see that investment, or maybe even in this transfer window, the transfer window is open until August 23rd, listener, just in case you want to know. That's the window for Dash to bring in uh, in extra players this season. But yeah, I think that's a great point. When will we see that money used and, and who have the Dash trusted with that money? Well, Theo, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk Dash with me, actually in a public arena as opposed to when we're sitting next to each other. <laughs> In, in the press box, I, I can't tell you how happy it makes me to see more and more people covering not only the Dash, but just, you know, NWSL in general. And, uh, you know, keep up the good work. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to be on here. And, uh, and yeah, we need more people covering this league. We need more intentional media. I think that's like a really good word to use because I think when you have a lot of people who do cover sports as more of an umbrella or they're picking up, you know, 
soccer as an umbrella, you know, all types of soccer. I mean, that's great. You know, we want more people covering soccer, but I think giving people expertise, time, attention, investment to to cover the NWSL or women's soccer more generally is is really important. So yeah, I'm very privileged. I'm happy to be here. I want to talk about it. And Jen, yeah, thank you so much for your work. Time for a little gensplaining. This week, I want to talk about roster size, also subbing. Um, We've seen some rule modifications in the last couple of years because of COVID, and it looks like some of those rules will be made permanent. Um, So since the 2020 Challenge Cup in Anibisel, we've seen five subs allowed per game. You're still limited as to how many times you can make a sub, or rather what they call sub windows during a game, but um, five people can sub in and out per game, plus two concussion subs. So this rule has now been made permanent by the IFAB that regulates that kind of stuff. So it's not temporary, it is permanent. Um, Similarly, they made an announcement that the World Cup rosters for the Men's World Cup this winter will be 26 players for the first time. It appears that this will be permanent going forward for all FIFA tournaments. And by FIFA tournaments, I mean Senior World Cups, Youth World Cups, FIFA Club World Cup. Does not necessarily apply to a CONCACAF tournament, a European-specific tournament, or the Olympics. Um, And I would assume this means that for the Women's World Cup next summer in Australia and New Zealand, that rosters will be 26 players instead of 23. The traditional 23-player roster basically comes from the formula of two teams of 11, so you can have you know an 11 v 11 scrimmage plus an extra keeper. Um, I would imagine this increase to 26 is more about um, you know developing more players, dealing with what we know to be extreme heat in so many places uh, these days, um, and I think also just. You know, instead of having alternates waiting in the wings back home, you know, in case someone gets injured at the last minute, those people are already with you. Um, We already saw last summer with the Olympics originally, you know, their tradition was 18 players plus four alternates. They just said, okay, all 22 are actually on the team. So that's the Gensplainer for this week. If you ever have a question or a topic you want me to talk about on the Gensplainer, send me an email, keeper at keepernotes.com. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Tony Matza, my data editor from Stats Perform, who's like the end of cell stats guru for South America. And I'm the end of cell stats guru for North America. How about that? Together, together, we like make up almost all of the continent or two continents. Rather, we like make up the whole hemisphere. That's it. That's what I meant to say. What do you think, Tony? I think that's really good. Thank you for having me again. <laughs> well, I'm I'm so excited to let listeners know that you've now elevated from just, you know, Twitter stat stalker like I used to be. Um, and, and now you've got like this gig as a data editor uh, for Stats Perform. So tell us a little bit about what that is. Um, okay, so first and foremost, I work for the Latin American team. So I'm not precisely working all the time on WSL, even if I'm trying to make my way on it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's basically trying to 
find stories and uh, nuggets of information that are um, interesting to different clients like broadcasters like yourself sometimes or clubs they hire the the, um, the data services uh, I'm just basically looking at numbers and trying to make it understandable enjoyable for the regular folks to read the stuff either on papers or watching on television etc etc and I think that's such an important job um, and it's it, it's really I've, I've seen that so much the last few years as I've gotten more involved with, with broadcasts and how stats work with broadcasts works. You can't just throw it, throw out a number. There has to be some context to the number, um, you know, and what's interesting to the viewer in terms of those numbers, you know, um, and contrasting numbers between players. Um, and also now we have this whole, uh, what's a good word for it, you know, elevated, more intense, that look yeah. at advanced. soccer. Yeah, advanced in, 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 in a way that, you know, just five years ago, I had never heard expected goals. And now, you know, it's in the Opta match packs that I get before games and we sometimes use it in the graphic. And so really my main question to you, Tony, is what is expected goals? If I'm random viewer that knows soccer, enjoys soccer, has watched many soccer games, but I'm hearing expected goals... What does that mean when, that's a good specific question. To a, when it's specific to a player? Yeah, that's a good question because, like you said, it's something that it's called like non-cumulative data or that doesn't have to do with something that you can expressively do in a spreadsheet, which is basically... Well, it doesn't show up in the box score. Exactly. At the, end of the game, at the end of the game, it's not in the box score, but it's, but it's a data point that is very telling. Yeah, but it's again, it's not like goals that you have zero, and if you score one, you have one for either for the game or for your career or appearances or right. whatever else. It's something that it has to do with a different different kind of elements. So basically, the expected goals it's the likelihood of a shot to be a goal, depending on different number of factors from distance angle of the shot regarding the, the goal, um, how many players were between the, the player that shot and the goalkeeper, positioning of the goalkeeper, which kind of body part is used of the shot. This a huge um, algorithm that makes that work. And I'm going to put a little bit of a... Yeah, I'm going to put a little bit of a um, note there. Okay. You will find another websites especially in, in, in um, leagues that have a wider coverage, like, I don't know, maybe the male Premier League, um, you may find different numbers in the expected goals of a team, of a player, of a shot in particular. And that's because not all the algorithm and not all the, the expected goals, um, how's it called? I forgot the name in English. Uh, but the, the, the way that you measure that likelihood, it's going to be different from one service to the other or from one model to the other. Okay. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like hurricane modeling. And, yep. and of course that's, you know, for, for me living in the Gulf coast, we have to deal with that every summer that they're like, all right, here's the four different models. And so the, the, the hurricane will fit along one of these. Um, but I, I feel like you explained that really well. And now I get a sense of, okay, so at the beginning of the game, Pre-game, the expected goals for a player, 
that's based on all of her previous shots this season, right? Yep. And then as the game progresses, anything that's happening live, they are updating throughout the game based on her performance in that game. They're changing her expected goals number. If, yes. If, if I mean, if they are, uh, if that's a seasonal number, it does. But uh-huh. every every player, every game starts with zero. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. I mean, you, it, it's, it has the same purposes as goals. Everyone starts with zero goals the game. Right, but maybe right. before the season, it's, it's the same kind of thing. Um, every shot has a, a value related to that model. Uh, one criticism that I heard, and it's absolutely valid, is that most of the values of the models doesn't include women's football or women's soccer for those oh, Americans. <laughs> oh, so those it, algorithms are built on Broso. I get it. Mostly, yeah. Okay. It's been uh, something that's been updated over the last couple of years. Of, uh, as you know, Jen, uh, it's been more easy to create uh, a database because we know we know how Sorry, we now have more access to videos and different kind of shots. Right. Because another another right. part of, I mean, you will ask me, how do you know the likelihood of a shot from 25 meters uh, of being a goal? Mm-hmm. Supposing that it doesn't have any players in, in between us and it's shot from your preferred leg. Let's say you're a right leg player. Mm-hmm. That's because it that's an historical dat- database of how many shots were taken from that distance, from that angle, and with that part of the body to create a, a number that makes up for it. An easy example that I use, and I think most of the people that works with this kind of models use, it's penalties. Mm-hmm. Historically, of all the, the penalties in the database, and we're talking about databases of millions of shots, like a lot of shots, is you, you, you can create a a model with, I don't know, let's say one season kind of um, shots or number of shots during one season, but it's going to be like a really limited data to create an, an accurate level of expected goals. You have to go way beyond in time. And penalties have a, have a value of 0.79 right now, hmm. which basically means of 10 penalties that are shot, eight, eight are goal. Right, right. That's like the easiest, the easiest way to understand the value of expected goals in terms of a shot in particular. A shot in particular can go from zero to one, where one is a goal. If you're shooting, shooting from the line of the goal, it's 0. 0.98, 0. 0.99. Uh-huh. Because we we have we have seen players like missing goals. Right? <laughs> we have we have seen people with it from one yard out. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it it could never be like exactly one, but it could be nine point eight and nine point nine point um, ninety nine. Uh, to to be truthful to that kind of things, I I remember an example comes to my mind when uh, Chubo Moting was playing PSG. And he basically put the ball on the line instead of shooting because he didn't want like a back heel or something, and he missed. So there were cases <laughs> of players missing goals. Uh, thankfully, 
more models have been created or being updated to include women's football, which is quite different in terms of shooting. Um, there, are, there are players that, quote-unquote, break the model. Uh, I remember a paper from a student in Belgium saying that the current um, like models or consensus of models in expected goals doesn't apply to Lionel Messi because he he has a higher rate of scoring from long range distance than mm-hmm. the rest of the players, and okay. obviously at more distance more difficult to score. Right. Uh, so it's always updated and try to be more faithful to what's going on. Uh, hopefully one day we're gonna see a complete model for women's football. It will be amazing because. It's different. Um, well, that's one of the yeah, reasons that, that I, I really enjoy women's soccer. And it's funny to say this when I've been following it for, what, 25 years now, but that it still feels like that it's we're getting in on the ground floor, that it's something very new, that we keep hitting these, hey, we're at this this new level of development in terms of um, so many more games being available on, on video, right? And that's right. when you can then build these databases or like you know you were telling me earlier about how you know it's just really been a few years that soccer has been taken more women's soccer has been taken more seriously in south america right so like this will probably be you know the biggest copa america feminina that we've seen the the women's euro this summer for the first time ever every single game is going to be available live in the usa Every yeah. single game. I remember we, we, the, the we 2005 in summer. Yeah, I remember the 2005 Women's Euro, like paying for some illegal audio feed, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's it's huge. So, like with this data, and uh, and this data is still very new on the men's side too, at least in the United States, right? It's really just been, I'd say, what the last four or five years that suddenly all the men's players are wearing sports bras, right? Yeah. Because because they have the little trackers and stuff like that, and. And we're seeing much more elaborate um, stat pages for you know for for live games. So it's yeah, it's 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 really fascinating. And it also makes yeah. me think with your explanation of expected goals, um, it makes me think about goalkeepers because when I'm kind of updating my stats, one of the things that always stays in my head about goalkeepers is like goals against average, um, save percentage, all of those by themselves, they're kind of empty numbers, right? Because yeah. save, save percentage doesn't tell you, well, how hard was the shot that she faced? How far away from it? What was the angle? How good was that shooter? You know, that kind of thing. Same for goals, you know, against average or goals conceded. It's like, well, how good was your defense <laughs> in yeah, front of you? Exactly. Right? Yeah. So, so that's why I think there's, you know, there's a lot more of this data that's going to, you know, help on, on, on that side of it as well. Before before, we, before I, I can like kind of answer the question, I want to yeah. add a little bit of a nugget that it's usually misinterpreted the expected goals. It's a predictive model and it isn't. It's about the quality of the shot. You can have a team that, I don't know, score 24 goals um, from 12 XG, for example. Uh-huh. That only means they're they're shooting above the average regarding they sh- they're, how they're they outperforming players. themselves. Yeah, they're outperforming themselves because how they're shooting has been poor in terms of, I know, the, the, the place they're shooting. 
it would mm-hmm. it's easier to explain with a player um because if a player is shooting a lot from outside the box it's going to have low values of the chi mm-hmm. that player could score three goals maybe but the spectacles could be like 0.75 because all the goals and all the shots have come from 25 meters out outside the box like long range shooting uh something that i don't know rapino likes to do yeah um, yeah yeah so outperforming doesn't mean that that player is going to keep scoring at that rate. It's about the quality of the shot, the decision-making of the players. Uh, when I was working with a team and trying to create my own model, because Argentinian football doesn't have anything of this, but I was trying <laughs> to figure it out the way. It's, I, I came up with the player saying, okay, you didn't score up to the level of expected goals, but you are shooting in the right places, on the right angles, and the right way. Like, oh. It's about how the, the decision making you're taking for the shots have been good. You didn't score because I don't know the keeper were good or uh, you weren't shooting uh, maybe too low on the ball or anything else that you can catch on video. But the decision making was good and you can go the other way around. Like maybe a player scoring a lot of goals with low XG, but the way that player is shooting eventually. It's gonna dry up because the decision making, the, the the shoots. It's we usually we do know players that like to shoot when they have like a couple of defenders up above them, like just on them, and they uh-huh. always get blocked shots. Well, that's bad decision making. Any shots in the expected goals because the higher the pressure from the defenders, the lower the expected goal is. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Kind of like Caroline's shot with Sonnet on her the other night where yeah. it, it's as if Sonnet, it was as if Sonnet was invisible to her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's really unlikely to go out. But, you know, sometimes you shoot and it goes on uh, onto the legs or something like that. Right. It, it does happen. And going back to keepers, there's like a way to use the spectacles to keepers, which is the goals they're considering and the expected goals that were supposed to be considered. Mm. That's that's goals prevented. Mm. Oh, I like so, that. So, for example, we have, uh, I'm going to use a, an, an, a current example with eight games play, uh, which is Campbell from Houston. Uh, uh-huh. She uh, received seven goals so far, but from the kind of shots she was like receiving or facing, she ha- she should have ten seventy seven goals against. Obviously, no one's going to score ten seventy seven. We're talking about between right. ten and eleven. Right. So her rate of goals prevented is four point seventy seven. She's right now the best in the league, and that's more descriptive than yeah. saying so and so has made X many saves because the saves it doesn't tell you how hard the save was, how difficult yeah. it was. The other team could have like. 10 shots from really long distance right. straight to the middle of the goal. And right. that doesn't break as a high difficulty for the goalkeeper. Right. On the other half, you have a couple, a couple of players with negative goals prevented, which means they're score, they're, they were allowing more goals they should have on the quality of the shots they were facing. Mm, interesting. Interesting. This is so helpful, Tony. So now, now you can explain to me... Um, Related to this, um, how do they decide stat-wise when an assist is an assist? 
and when it's not an assist. And of course, we also want to talk a little bit about goalkeeper assists since Kaylin Sheridan had one this past weekend. And of course, that brought up on Twitter people saying, hey, why didn't Ashlyn Harris get one last year? So, so first tell me, you know, and I know it's not black and white, you know, that there's yeah. kind of, there's an interpretation to it, but generally, you know, when is it not an assist? Okay. Um, first and foremost, I'm going to say that I'm, 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 uh, I, I feel a little bit sorry of the guys that do collect the data because sometimes NW sound feeds are a little bit unhelpful. It's going to put it that way. Uh, <laughs> with some replays doesn't like, they're not really. It doesn't real, help you, know? you. No. Yeah. I yeah, hear yeah. you. So I'm, I'm going I'm to put a little bit of at ease those guys. Um, but you gave a perfect example. Like you said, uh, Sheridan made an assist this weekend. And the example that we have was Ashley Harris uh, in, a, in a goal for uh, Sydney LaRue against Kansas City. Um, I think, yeah, last year. Last year. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm plugging my memory as much as I can. Um, if you if you look that uh, on on that cross from Harris from midfield, there is a tiny tiny deflection on a defense on a defender. Um, that tiny deflection makes, in terms of probability, easier to Leroux to get the ball than the goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. In that case, it's not an assist because technically the deflection of the ball. Um, changes the probability of the player to A, get the shot, and B, the kind of shot that happens. Technically, if you get an assist, I don't know, if you cross the ball, ideally, you're crossing to someone to head it in. If someone deflects it and, and I know, in the middle of the box, it's not an assist anymore. It's still a deflection, but it's in a more obvious deflection if you want to. And mm-hmm. the same, you could, uh, you, the example that we were talking earlier was uh, Caroline to Ardonias. That actually, I remember tweeting about it, saying it wasn't assist. But then going over the video, I, I saw that Caroline actually tried to shoot. And that's when the, the famous word that you were saying earlier is a little bit of interpretation. I had to watch it a couple of times and say, okay, this really looks like Caroline trying to shoot instead of assisting. In, so Caroline got an, a shoot. Uh, a shot away from target or not on target and Ordonez got one on, on target and a goal mm. instead of mm. assist plus goal. Um, every, every action has um, has to be tagged with, with an event. How that event it's tagged or, or which event corresponds to the action it's sometimes down to interpretation. And I understand if people say, okay, it's not three uh, assists from a goalkeeper, it is four. That's fine. That's uh, We are not, there's a little bit of uh, a myth that sometimes you try to, or the, the people saying you are trying to own the truth. It's just how I see or how, the, the in this case, the data collectors see the data. If you say it's four, it's fine. If you, it's, it's not bad to have a different way to measure something. Uh, in, in fact, there are many other companies that do that. And, and thankfully, I have a couple of friends on, on, on each of them, and we can like argue and laugh about it sometimes. Um, but it's, it's not wrong to have a different interpretation sometimes. Uh, I have 
but you you always have to understand that data had to be within the limits of what being called, which is another part which is interesting. Because right. I remember I remember tweeting like I think it was a touch map from Paul and Thorns um, against San Diego saying, okay, so they have X number of touches and whatnot. Somebody tweeted me saying, uh, you missed uh, the touch inside the goal. And I I replied, read what you were saying. I mean, I cannot put a touch inside the goal because it will be a goal. <laughs> but if, if the referee says it wasn't a goal... It's not a goal. Yeah, I, I, I cannot, like... If you want to have your own Excel spreadsheet with bad goals, that's fine. Go Probably. for it. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we have to take into account the stats perform if the it's the official provider for the for the league and many other leagues. We have to, you know, be in the in the under the the restraint of what the the, right. the referees call for. If you're it's working, an offside, we have to call this offside. Framework of the game, yeah. You're working within the framework of the game, right? Like it, it's like um, tracking minutes for players, right? It's a ninety yeah. minute game. Um, sure, we know stoppage time is played. We know there's water breaks and that kind of stuff. But bottom line, if you play the entire game, you're credited with ninety minutes. You're not you're credited with ninety six or ninety eight. You're credited with ninety minutes. Yeah. So if a sub, a sub is made in second half stoppage time. The person who goes off is credited with 89 minutes and the person that comes on is credited with one, right? Yeah. It's like, it's not meant to be, this is exactly how much minutes I played. It's meant to represent within the structure of 90 minutes, right? Yeah. And yeah. You can, you can even, you can, you can do it. You can have it, but in the end, but uh, it's, it's not helpful like comparing to, a game to a game. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I ran into that uh, doing stats uh, in Moscow in 2018 that we were trying to track who had played the most minutes and all of FIFA's data kept being exactly how many minutes and seconds they played. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I just need like the 90 and the 120s. I don't, yes. <laughs> I don't need the other stuff. And I like that you, you mentioned um, the broadcast issue because this is another thing that you know, we'll just get better and better as, as we see more coverage of the women's games. And, and this is true, you know, in the growth of the men's game as well, especially in like USL and stuff like that, that, Hey, you know, the more cameras you have, you know, the better you'll be able to make judgments on those tiny little, did it go in? Did it not go in? Right. Like there's a lot of people you know, fans, anytime they feel their team was robbed as a goal, they're like, oh, we need VAR. It's like, well, that's a lot of investment for something that might not make a difference there. Right? I'm like, you know, goal line technology would probably take care of that. Um, yeah. But I think it's hard on the broadcast end where, yeah, the stats people and those of us calling the game that it's like, hey, if I only get to see three angles and it's also the quality of those angles, right? Like um, there was... A World Cup qualifier is watching recently a men's qualifier where they had the camera was exactly on the goal line. So you can yeah. see, oh, it was it was the PKs for, for Australia, Peru. Right. You, could, you could see, no, it didn't cross the line. It bounced off the post, right? Because they had the camera exactly on the right angle. So th- there was no question where we've yeah. seen some replays in NWSL where, Sure, it looks like the ball has gone over, but based on where the camera is, that's not the right angle, angle to judge from. Imagine for a referee. What? Oh, my that? God. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and sometimes we do have like little town meetings within the team. Like, <laughs> how how do we approach this? Or yeah, how should this count for? And it, it does have a level of human error, error. And yeah, I mean, obviously, because if we're only counted counted by machines. First and foremost, will be too too boring. Um, yes. Yes. But interpretation is so important because without that interpretation, you you wouldn't have some nuggets of information that's so important. And I was writing something today. I mean, it's obviously a, a non NWSL kind of example, but to give you a, like how we can go farther and farther to the point that we get important data. I was writing something about Argentina because. I was tasked to write about a game in the 1998 World Cup against England. Uh-huh. And just looking at data, I just realized that the last time Argentina scored a penalty in a World Cup was in 1998. The two, uh, the two penalties that we have after that were missed. And I don't remember that going around during the World Cup. So it's, it's something that I can like storage in my mind right now. And if it happens, I can say, okay, this is the first penalty Argentina scored since blah, blah, blah. It's just down to humans going after it and, and exploring different spreadsheets and data and going all day onto it, which is really fun if you like it. Like yeah. Me. But some other people will say, that's not for me, <laughs> but it's understandable. But yeah, they have to have a little bit of... Uh, don't go into hard into, into some data because it there, there are gray areas within it. Yes, which sometimes sometimes the people that watch the games don't doesn't like, but it is what yeah. it is. Uh, it and context is so important, even in the kind of data that you know I like tracking of you know who's played the most games, who's played the most minutes, total goals. Um, I, I saw a discussion on Twitter. Uh, people saying, I can't believe Sam Kerr still has the most goals. And then someone's like, oh, it's because, you know, because she was always here because Australia doesn't play as much as the U.S. It's like, well, that doesn't hold up because when you look at number of goal scores relative to number of games played, she still has a much higher rate um, than a lot of players. So that's why it's, it's like it's never the number by itself. It's It's all the context. Like, how many goals per games played or per minutes played or how many times did they start um, strength of opponent, all that stuff. You know, so. that's, there's a metric that always people take badly because it take, it, it's taken out of context, which is possession. Mm. Possession. I mean, this is something that uh, my boss actually kind of came out uh, quote unquote, because the data obviously existed before but he became kind of obsessed. So now I'm checking it out, checking it out too. Um, people take possession at the end of the game, like a fair assessment of said game. Like if at the end of the ninth minute, Poland Thorns had 70% possession, they say, okay, they dominated. Which in a sense of what you're looking at uh, on that number would be fair to come with that conclusion. But Something that we were tracking lately and trying to uh, figure out, it's uh, a common denominator, both in male and women's soccer, mm-hmm. which is the teams doesn't have possession when they're up in the in the score. They hmm. keep up possession. 
Um, there's only one team in in males football right now that does have more position when winning than tying or losing, which is Manchester City. And oh. we're trying to do this, trying to do the same with with women's. We're trying to get all the data possible to have some kind of conclusion, which is really interesting because people tend to assume that the team that had the possession, the highest possession at the end of the game, at the end of the first half, for example, were the dominant team. But there are different kind of situations that will shift that. Uh, and different styles uh, of play. Yeah, different styles of play, a red card, a substitution. There are many things within the game that would change that. And it's fun to look at because it, it gives you a better uh, context of what's going on during the game. That's why I love to see the position every 15 minutes to yeah. have a, 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 a more accurate way and not only go to the final number. I mean, the only final number that you should see in football or soccer, it's the score. That's that's the <laughs> actual final number that you should like. Okay, that's what, that's what matters. Any other metric, it just depends of the game and... It's all relative to everything else. It's relative to everything else. And I know that the quote-unquote common fan wouldn't like it, but it needs a bit of education from everybody, broadcaster, journalism, everybody to don't take a number just for what it is, but have a little bit of context like you were saying earlier. Right, right. Well, Tony, thank you so much for taking the time, one, to explain expected goals to me. That was very helpful. Um, and also for just all your statistic insight and, you know, everything you've offered and the result fans uh, via Twitter these last couple of years, really appreciate it. Problem. It's been, a, it's a pleasure, obviously, because we need, we need more accurate data and more people uh, doing this. We have a good friend of mine, Ariel, doing a lot of charts and she's been awesome. There's a, a lot of other nerds love data uh, I remember WSL Field of Fusion, for example, as another really good Twitter account that everybody should be following because we need more interpretation. And again, they don't use the same database that I use. And that's fine because we need more data to expand our limits and our interpretation of the game. Even if they don't use... I, we have conversations. They have a different model for expected goals. And we talk about it. And I don't care of a difference of, I know, if one team has 1.23, another one, 1.31. It means one goal. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's that the whole thing. It, it could be different on a model, but the important thing is taking, uh, knowing there's a, quality, a qualitative measure and how many score, goals I score actually from that kind of shots. And that's that. There's no need to, you know, create a feud on on the numbers. It, it's just just great work that everybody does. Uh, Car Carpenter also another uh, good guy around on Twitter that does a lot of good work on data and tactical analysis. We just, you know, going into that and, and making well, it a little you'll, bit more. You'll share a list with me of Twitter handles people should follow <laughs> and I'll make sure that it's that it's uh, on the I web will. page for I will. the website. But Tony, thank you so much and keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. All right. 
right time to wrap it up with the back four. Lots of links that you guys need to um, bookmark or just keep an eye on. First, my Keeper Notes Woso Google Calendar. You can access this calendar by searching via Google Calendar or if you just go to my website, keepernotes.com, um, you can find it on the Wosopedia page. On this calendar, I have all NWSL regular season games, all USA friendlies, uh, this summer's Euro games, the CONCACAF W championship, any friendlies involving um, NWSL players, uh, the NCAA College Cup. I had a lot of stuff there. And if I can find broadcast info, I will add broadcast info. Secondly, there's also a link there of international call-ups of current NWSL players. So if you're wondering who's called up for what and when they're playing and when they're coming back to their club team, um, I've been building that in a spreadsheet also linked on the website on the Wosopedia page. Um, There are a lot of players who've just been called up. Many will return for July. Some will not. And I know it's confusing. There's a lot of international soccer going on, which is awesome. Um, And I plan to to put up some more posts on keepernotes.com to help everybody keep those straight. Which leads me to the third thing, how to watch all of these games. More and more games, uh, women's games, are available uh, for us to watch, even internationally. Um, For the first time ever, the Women's Euro will be available in the U.S. every single game, either on ESPN, ESPN2, or ESPN+. That's huge. That has never happened before. Uh, Women's Euro 2017, I think it was maybe like four or five games were available. I remember back in 2005 paying for an illegal audio feed just so I could listen to the final. So awesome uh, that we'll be able to get all those on ESPN. Of course, um, the entire CONCACAF W Championship will be on Paramount+. Plus. Another great reason to subscribe to Paramount+. Plus. It doesn't cost you anything extra. It's just part of that package. Um, and I'm hoping to find more information on the Copa America Femenina um, and tournaments, uh, um, Africa Cup of Nations, anything else that's going on international-wise. Um, so keep an eye on KeeperNotes.com or KeeperNotes on Twitter as I share that in information. Last but not least, um, NWSLsoccer.com has started a great page of bios on all of the players in the league who have been rostered all 10 seasons in the league. Um, There's just 21 of them, and we'll call them the OGs. there are many players who played in the first season and are still in the league, but haven't been in the league every season. So this is just the players who have been rostered with an NWSL team all 10 seasons. And it's an amazing list. All right. That's it for this episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. Many thanks to everyone for listening, sharing, liking, sending it on to friends. Um, and of course, big, big thanks to my producer, Sean, and to the Beautiful Game Network for hosting this podcast. But now she's anybody